Tonight's message will be sermon number 19 in the series on infant salvation. And the title of the message tonight is The Elect Infant Clause in Our Church's Confession of Faith. Now, in the previous messages in this series, we have examined and rejected seven major views of infant salvation. We have described and defended the Calvinistic theory of infant salvation as the only position which makes the salvation of any infant a possibility and which affirms the salvation of all infants dying in infancy as an evangelical reality. Tonight, we will attempt to accomplish another of our goals announced at the outset of our study, and that being to defend our church's confession of faith from the unfair and unjust charge of teaching, or of at least implying the actual damnation of some infants dying in infancy. Those who are anti-Calvinistic go to our church's confession of faith, and they take a clause relating to infant salvation stated in there, and they assert that that clause teaches that Calvinists actually believe that some infants who die in infancy perish in hell. And so we want to examine that tonight and to defend that from that most unjust and unreal uh, criticism. Now, the background of this charge comes early in the formation of our Confession of Faith. We must understand the background of the Confession of Faith which we hold and where it came from. We have adopted as a church that which is known as the Philadelphia Confession of Faith. This confession of faith was adopted by the Baptist Association in America, which met in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, on September 25th in the year 1742. But this confession of faith did not originate there in Philadelphia. This confession of faith, which we hold to, was originated in the year 1647 by the Presbyterians in what was called the Westminster Confession of Faith. Then it was later adopted by the Congregational Churches of England in 1658, with the only modification being in the area of church government. That is, the Congregationists believe in a local church policy. The Presbyterians believe in a presbytery type of or a connectional form of church government. So the Congregational churches adopted the Westminster Confession of Faith and modified the statement in regard to church government. This became known as the Savoy Declaration of Faith and Order. Then in 1689, the Baptist of England revised the Westminster Confession of Faith to suit their views on church government and the mode of baptism. That is, they believed, as we believe as Baptists, that the mode of baptism is that of by immersion of a believer. The Presbyterians and the Congregationists still support infant baptism and the sprinkling as the mode of baptism. And so the Baptists adopted the Westminster Confession of Faith in 1689 in England and changed two sections, one relating to church government and the second section relating to baptism. This became known as the London Confession of Faith. Now, it was that confession of faith which the Baptist who migrated to America adopted and entitled the Philadelphia Confession of Faith in the year 1742 in America. 
It was the accepted confession of faith for both Baptists of the North and of the South for many, many years, even after the dividing of the Baptists over the issue of the Civil War and other matters. Still, both the Northern Baptist and the Southern Baptist retained this confession of faith as a statement of their beliefs. It was not until the, uh, the century beginning of the 1900s that Baptists began to feel that they needed to outgrow this famous document. And through the influence of humanism and Arminianism, they gradually then dis continued the use of this particular confession of faith and modified it to such a degree that most of the congregational and Baptist churches of the day have no resemblance to the confession of faith as it originated in Philadelphia. Now, in this confession of faith, there contains a chapter on effectual calling. And the primary charge against the Calvinistic view of salvation is that it supposedly portrays a view of God in which God is unfair and prejudiced in his dealings with men. And thus the critics of Calvinism persist in saying that the Calvinistic view of God is one in which God arbitrarily assigns some men to heaven and some men to hell, irrespective of their deserts and without being given a fair hearing in court. Of course, nothing is further from the truth, as we have shown in these messages. But the Presbyterians... The Congregationalists and the Baptists were all the primary representatives of the Calvinistic interpretation of Scripture, along with the original Church of England in their Articles of Faith. Now, the critic of Calvinism, who attempts to refute it, realizes that he has a Herculean task in attempting to refute the Calvinistic position in a direct head-to-head confrontation. And if you don't believe that, then you just attempt to take it up. I remember my days in which that God brought me to a direct confrontation with these great truths, and I felt that I was up to it and could handle it very readily with my evangelical Arminian views. And it was not until I was confronted head-to-head in a toe-to-toe battle with what the Calvinists actually teach that I saw that what I was holding to was not only could not be held to logically, but it could not be held to biblically. So the the anti-Calvinists, if they attempt to refute the Calvinistic position of salvation, In a direct head-to-head confrontation, they know they have a task on their hands. Thus, the anti-Calvinist usually takes an easier approach, wherein the critic proceeds to misrepresent the Calvinistic view in such a way as to arouse the passions and the prejudices of his hearers against the Calvinist view of salvation. Inasmuch as nothing arouses human emotion more than statements regarding their own children or offspring, the critic of Calvinism then affirms that Calvinism actually teaches that God assigns some infants who die in infancy to hell even though they are immature and incapable of moral actions, strictly on the basis that it gives God great pleasure and delight in doing so. Now, of course, if you're a parent and you have never heard of the teachings of Calvinism and someone comes along 
And that's the first introduction you are given to of Calvinism, and that your children might be involved in that. It won't take long before you've slammed the door of any further investigation in regard to the truth of the matter. So the critics, rather than locking horns with the system head to head, they arouse the emotions and the prejudice of the hearer against the Calvinistic view of salvation by affirming that Calvinists actually teach that some children die in infancy and actually perish in hell, and that it pleases God for it to be that way. Now, the critic's basis for this charge is that he goes to the Calvinist confession of faith, whether it be the Westminster, the Savoy, the London or the Philadelphia, since they are all worded the same, with the exception of the two chapters on government and baptism. And he goes to chapter 10 and section 3 to justify his charge. This whole chapter is designed to deal with the subject of the effectual calling of the gospel. And it is meant to be descriptive of the way and means wherein God saves those whom he has elected or chosen. I want to at this time read the clause which the critic jumps upon to supposedly ascribe to us that we believe that, we, that some infants die in infancy and go to hell. Now, here is the statement in our confession. Elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit who worketh when and where and how he pleaseth. So also are all other elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. Now, that's the extent of the clause involved. Now, remember, the whole chapter, which I'll read here in a moment, is entitled, The Effectual Calling of God. It is designed to explain how and when God is pleased to save those whom he has chosen. But the question comes up then, well, how can God save an infant? And the confession does not seek to avoid the question. But it speaks that elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit. And so are all other elect persons who are incapable of being called through the preaching of the word. That is, that would include the mentally retarded and the idiots. Now, the critic of the Calvinists takes this one statement, and he draws an inference from it, and then presents a deduction, and then charges that this is what the Calvinist teaches. He takes the statement, elect infants dying in infancy are saved by Christ. And then the critic says that that clearly implies that there are non-elect infants who die in infancy and thereby must be lost. And then from that point on, then, he begins to ascribe to the world at large that the Calvinistic confession of faith actually teaches that there are non-elect infants who die in infancy. And of course, as we will try to show tonight, that is not what the confession is stating, and it cannot be inferred from it. It is only coming from the prejudiced mind of someone who is trying to find a basis for casping aspersions upon the Calvinistic position. Now, I want to go a step further in describing how that they go about using this criticism. The critic of the Calvinists states 
when he reads that elect infants dying in infancy, when he reads that, instead of concentrating upon that phrase, he immediately goes to the contrast and thinks that there is are non-elect infants which die in infancy. And then, having obtained this inference from the confession, they go a step further and state that the Calvinistic confessions actually teach that some non-elect infants actually do die in infancy and then perish. Having made this deduction, then they proceed to announce to the world at large that Calvinism teaches in its official creed that there are infants in hell not and a span long, that is, not any longer than your arm. Now, I would like to take the message tonight to defend our church's confession from that unjust criticism, for it is certainly that, and we will attempt to show it as such. I will do so by first giving a detailed explanation of the confession, and then a concise summation of the confession of faith. Now, if you would, or if you should have your confession of faith with you, then I want to read the entire section before you at this time. It deals with the matter of chapter 10 on effectual calling. If you have it, then follow along with me. If not, then listen very, very carefully, and we'll read it very slow and precisely. Section 1. Those whom God has predestinated unto life, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature, unto grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds, savingly or spiritually and savingly, to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving unto them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills, and by his almighty power determining them to that which is good, and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ. Yet so, as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. Section 2. This effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone not from anything at all foreseen in man, nor from any power or agency in the creature, co-working with his special grace, the creature being wholly passive therein, being dead in trespasses and sins, until being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit, he is thereby enabled to answer this call, and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it, and that by no less power than that which raised up Christ from the dead. Now section 3, which deals with the matter of elect infants. Elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit, who worketh when and where and how he pleaseth. So also are all other elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. Section 4. Others not elected, although they may be called by the ministry of the word and may have some common operations of the spirit, yet not being effectually drawn by the Father, they neither will nor can truly come to Christ, and therefore cannot be saved. Much less can men that receive not the Christian religion be saved. 
be they never so diligent to frame their lives according to the light of nature and the law of that religion they do profess. Now, that, though, that's, this statement was not something that was thrown together in a Saturday night manner to preach on Sunday morning. This was compiled over years by some of the most godly, brilliant-minded men that the Lord has ever given to the church. This is why it is precise and clear, and this is why it is so hated by its enemies. You can read this, and you know right away whether you believe in it or not. You can read some confessions of faith, and you have to read them and read them and read them to really, and you don't know yet what they're saying. That's because they're designed like that. They're designed to try to let everybody fit in to that confession of faith. This confession is precise, so that when you read the statements, you know what they mean, and you know whether that you're in agreement or whether you are in disagreement with them. Now, I want to give seven propositions to consider to the four sections which we have read on the subject of the effectual calling of God. <clears throat> First of all, proposition number one, this confession gives to us a definition of those who will be actually saved. That's the purpose of this section. It is defining those who will be actually saved. Now, that's his primary purpose. Therefore, we read such things in the beginning as this. Find it here. Start. Those whom God had predestinated unto life. That is... It describes those who are going to be saved, and then it proceeds to dis explain in descriptive detail how God actually saves those. All men, being sinners, have forfeited all right and title to God. This is what we believe as Calvinists. If you confess that and agree with us on that, then what you are saying is that no man has a right to salvation as a sinner. Now, maybe as a holy man, as an innocent creature, that could be another matter. But no sinner has a legal right to salvation, for that has been forfeited in sin. So that if all men fell in Adam, and all men are born sinners, then no one can say that it is unfair that God does not grant everyone a legal right to salvation. All men forfeited their standing to the favor of God when they fell in sin. So that no man deserves the right to the blessings of eternal life. The primary consideration, then, is how can a sinner receive the right to be saved? And the confession says that it is, they are given that right by the electing grace of God. That is, God could have chosen to bypass the whole race that was fallen in Adam as he did the fallen angels. They had no right. No man has a right to be saved. Now, bear that in mind. If you disagree with that, then you will go along your way along a certain course of thinking. But you will not remain within the Calvinistic camp, for the Calvinist states that he believes the Bible teaches that no man has a right to that holy throne anymore as a result of sin. So that if anybody has a legal right to be saved, that right must be granted them by the sovereign election of God. Now, divine election conveys that right. 
so that all those and those only who are chosen by the Father are entitled to share in the benefits of Christ's redemption and the calling of the Holy Spirit, so that we read, those whom God hath predestinated unto life. Out of a fallen race in Adam, dead in trespasses and sin, God chose some to give them a legal right to the benefits of Christ's death, and he left the others to their own natural state. He chose some by his grace and left others to their race. And he is entirely just in doing so. Now, in order for any citizen to have a legal right to be the president of the United States, he must first be elected to that office by the sovereign vote of the people. But in order for that same man to enter into the conscious exercise of the office of the United States presidency, he must be inaugurated by the Congress. That is, he must then come into an actual possession of what the electorate gave him legally. It is one thing to be elected, but that does not make him the president. He must come into an actual possession of what the people have bestowed upon him. Thus, God Almighty has prescribed in an analogous way, that before any disinherited sinner can partake of the saving blessings of the gospel, he must first be elected thereunto by the sovereign elector himself, which is God. But, and here we must clarify this, for many non-Calvinists do not hear the whole story. Election by God does not actually save anybody. Any more than election to the presidency actually makes that person the president. Election bestows the sovereign right to the blessings of salvation. But that person must in time come into a conscious possession of what God has bestowed or given the right to. So that if you say, Brother Jim, when were you saved? And my reply is, I was granted the right to salvation before the foundation of the world. But I was not actually saved until the Holy Spirit brought me to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, I became conscious of my legal right to the throne of God by the application of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. What God chose in eternity past he granted in due time. So that for the sinner to partake of the saving blessings of the gospel, he must be elected by the sovereign elector who is God, but in order for him to be actually and consciously enjoy the privileges of salvation, he must be introduced thereunto by the conversion ministry of the Holy Spirit. So this chapter, then, is for the purpose of defining those who will be actually saved, and it is those to whom God has granted the legal right of salvation unto all men forfeiting that right in their fall in Adam. Now, secondly, this chapter then next proceeds to define the method 
in which all those sinners who have been predestinated unto eternal life come into the actual enjoyment of their spiritual and heavenly privileges. That is, how is it that those who God chose to give the legal right to salvation, how is it that God then actually saves them and makes them conscious of the benefits of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ? And this is why the section is called the effectual calling of God. It explains how God saves now people. The manner in which all those predestinated unto eternal life come into the actual enjoyment of their heavenly privileges is brought out in these words. They are effectually called by the word and. There is no pressure put on the will so as to make it do something it does not want to do. The people whom God chooses to save and actually saves are those who are actually brought to come to Christ willingly. They come freely. Yet they are also described as, quote, altogether passive, in the sense that a dead man is passive until quickened by life. Lazarus was passive until the Lord spoke life. The dry bones in Ezekiel's day were passive until the Spirit of God put life or flesh upon them and breathed life unto them. Yet, the confession says that they come most freely as they are quickened by the Spirit and they, quote, Answer this call. What call? The call which is given through the gospel. So how does God save a sinner? Through the ministry of the word and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So that they answer the call of the gospel and embrace the grace which is offered in the gospel and conveyed in the gospel. Lazarus answered the call and embraced the life, but he also had life conveyed to him in the answering of that call. He being dead, yet God made him alive. So this is then a definition of the way in which God saves those whom he has predestined unto eternal life. Now, catch me, provided they are capable of answering the call, that is, they are sound adults with minds that can discern the preaching of the gospel. Now, proposition number three, and you ought to be asking a question at this time, all right? I see how then God saves adults through the preaching of the word as it's preached. He quickens his elect, makes them alive, makes them come to saving faith in Christ so they come most freely. For faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. All right. I understand that, one would say. But a question. Suppose there are some who are mentally incapable of answering the call by the ministry of the word, such as infants who die in infancy, or those who are mentally retarded. How can God save them? They can't understand anything the preacher's talking about. They don't have the mental capacity. To understand, well, how then can God save them if he saves adults through the ministry of the word combined with the spirit? What about those who are incapable of discerning the word, of even understanding what the name of Jesus Christ means? What about them? 
And it's at this time that the confession goes on to answer this question. Though incapable of obeying the outward call of the word, yet such incapables as infants and mentally retarded, being elect, are entitled to that right of eternal life, legally by the election of God. And they will not be cheated out of the benefits of the atonement of Christ to pardon their guilt. Nor will they be shortchanged of the regenerating grace of God to sanctify and cleanse their natures. They shall surely, according to the confession of faith, come into the gracious enjoyment of the rights which were conferred upon them by the electing decree of God. Thus our statement says, elect infants. Dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit, who worketh when and where and how he pleaseth, and so are all other elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the Word. That is, after dealing with how God saves adults who are elect, then the question is, well, how could... How can anybody be saved who's incapable of hearing the word? And the confession speaks to that. And it says that they shall not be denied the privileges of Christ's death, the regenerating work of the Spirit, because the decree of election has been bestowed upon them, thereby they have the right to that, and are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit, without the outward ministry of the word of God. Now, the fourth proposition. Our confession then gives two qualifying statements which must be true of infants who are saved without the ministry of the word. That is, it gives some qualifi qualifying descriptives of who it is that God saves without the ministry of the word. And those are infants, in order to be beneficiaries of salvation in this manner, without the ministry of the word, two things must be true of them. First, they must be elect, and secondly, they must die in infancy. That is, God saves adults through the ministry of the Word. He saves some without the ministry of the Word, but our confession qualifies those people. They are infants who are first of all elect, and secondly, who die in infancy. Now, this is why that we, in spite of being charged by many unknowing people, that we are hard-shell Baptists, that is not the case. Hard-shell Baptists believe that many elect adults will be saved without the ministry of the Word. Thus, there is no need to have the preaching of the gospel. We renounce that as being unbiblical. We believe that no sound-minded adult will enter into the portals of glory without coming to personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Therein we believe it is necessary for missions. It is essential to take the gospel into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. But what about those creatures who are infants and who are mentally retarded? and they can't hear the preaching of the gospel. Then our confession says that God saves them without the ministry of the word, through the direct ministry of the Spirit alone, applying the benefits of Christ's death and the regenerating work of the Spirit. 
But a question may be asked, but why does the confession say that infants, in order to be a beneficiary of the atonement of Christ and the vocation or the calling of the Holy Spirit, must be elect? Why does the confession state that, that they must be elect? And the answer is because the confession says that only elect persons are savable. It is only the elect that are going to be actually saved. But then another question, why does the confession of faith say that these elect infants must die in infancy? Why does it specifically state that? For a reason, my friend, a good reason. Because only dead infants are moral incapables. If they live and grow to adulthood and obtain moral discretion, then they must obtain eternal life in the ordinary mode, which is through the preaching of the gospel. So that the only people whom God saves without the preaching of the gospel are elect infants who die in infancy. Not those who live and become an adult. If you're not an infant here tonight, and you can discern somewhat of what I'm talking about, that there's a gospel, there's a heaven to gain, the hell to shun, then, my friend, don't you trust whatever supposedly happened back there in your infancy. You must come to saving faith through the gospel. You must come to faith in Christ through the means appointed by God. So our confession very carefully qualifies that only infants who die in infancy are saved in this unusual way by the Spirit alone, and also those idiots and mentally retarded people who cannot discern the gospel. That is, they cannot apply or they cannot understand what the preacher is talking about. They do not have the mental capacities to understand the preaching of the Word of God. So therein... This distinguishes us from hardshellism. I encountered a hardshell Baptist one time who told me, right to my face, that there will be a large number of God's elect who will never ever hear the name of Jesus Christ, who live in foreign countries, who will wake up in heaven. I do not believe that's the truth of the Bible. Our statement says that no man can be saved that does not receive the Christian religion, be they ever so diligent to frame their lives according to the light of nature and the law of the religion that they do profess. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. If there is a conscious, capable adult anywhere in the world, the only way he's going to get to the Father is through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's through the instrumentality of preaching. He's not going to have a direct work of the Spirit upon him the way God is pleased to deal with infant children who die in infancy or upon a mentally retarded person. So if you're not mentally retarded tonight, and if you're not an infant here tonight, then you are a responsible person to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. You must come to him in the gospel. Now, the fifth proposition that we wish to show out of this statement is that this chapter then proceeds to define the persons who are finally lost. Who is it that is ultimately going to experience the pains of hell? Who is it? Now, all deserve to go there, right? But something happens that some don't go there. And we know that's through the intervention of the redemptive program of God. But who finally goes there? Notice our text or our confession says, Others not elect, now listen, who never truly Come to Christ. Just as the confession qualifies 
What group of infants can be saved, those who are elect and those who die in infancy are saved, so the confession describes in detail those who are finally going to be lost. Now, who are they? They are the persons who never truly come to Christ. Ah, now watch it. This excludes infants. For an infant is incapable of coming to Christ through faith to start with. Those who never truly come to Christ. Now let me read the whole statement. Others not elected, although they may be called by the ministry of the word. That's adults, not infants now and may have some common operations of the Spirit. They may sit under a sermon and feel guilty, may even get convicted about some things in their life. The common ministry of the Spirit, Hebrews chapter 6, a description there. Yet not being effectually drawn by the Father, they neither will come to Christ nor can, that's ability, inability, truly come to Christ and therefore will not be saved. Now, who is it's finally going to be lost? It's the person who never truly comes to Christ. Now, that excludes the infant. So the confession then deals with how God saves infants, but it says that the only people who actually perish are those who do not come to Christ through the ministry of the word and the common operations of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So that two things, according to this confession, must concur at the same time upon that person who is in, who will go to hell, and who is in hell. They must be non-elect, passed over by the Father, and they must refuse to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Both of these are necessary before God assigns anyone to experience the pains of punishment in hell. Now, if you're here tonight and you've heard the gospel preached, you know that there's no other way of salvation other than through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you say, I will not go on those terms, and you die in those terms, then you will be the one who is finally lost. You will be the one who is assigned to that place where those go who have no love for God. And God says, Ephraim hath joined himself unto idols, let him alone, let him alone, let him alone. What is non-election? What is reprobation? It's God saying, let him alone, let him alone. And beloved, that's one of the most sobering teachings you'll find anywhere in the Bible is when God lets a sinner alone to himself and never deals with him so as to bring him to Christ. Read Romans 1, what happens to people who are given over to a reprobate mind. So this chapter then defines the persons who will be ultimately lost. Then the sixth proposition relating to this chapter is that this chapter in relating the redemptive program of God, it does so to three classes of people. This chapter divides men and women into three categories. I want to give them to you. Category one of whom God deals with in his redemptive program is that of capable adults who, quote, answer the call through the means of the gospel and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Class number two that the confession deals with in this chapter deals with dead infants and mentally retarded who are, quote, being incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. And then the third class of people that are described in this chapter is, quote, 
those capable adults who, quote, never truly come to Christ. Those are the three categories which this chapter is dealing with. The first two classes, according to the confession, are saved. Capable adults who answer the call. Incapable infants who cannot answer the call. Those two classes are saved. While the third class of capable adults who refuse to answer the call are insavable. They are let alone in their sin. The confession nowhere represents any persons as actually damned except those who never truly come to Christ. Therein that eliminates any infant from being actually damned, according to the confession. But it proclaims the salvation of those sound-minded adults who answer the call, and the salvation of those infants who die in infancy, and those moral defectives, such as the mentally retarded, who are incapable of being called by the outward ministry of the word. These classes of people are saved. And the confession declares that their right to eternal life is rooted and grounded in the election of the Father, that the actual purchase of eternal life was made by the atoning death of the Son, and the application of eternal life in conscious experience was made by the Holy Spirit. The only difference between the first two classes is that the first class Elect adults answer the call, and the second class, infants, cannot answer the call, but yet they are saved directly by the Spirit himself. Now, at this time, the seventh proposition will be given, and it is the critic's reply to our exposition up to this point. The critic says at this point, But, sir, does not your confession of faith imply, at least, that there are some non-elect infants? When it says elect infants dying in infancy, if I acknowledge what you state, that you believe that no non-elect dies in infancy, does not your statement clearly imply there are infants which are (laughs) non-elect? And we back up and reply in a kind way to our critic, of course it does. Of course it does. If the doctrine of predestination is true, that God distributed the human race, fallen in Adam, into two categories, elect and non-elect, and if he did this before the foundation of the world, in which he viewed the race prospectively fallen in Adam in sin and divided some into the elect and some into the non-elect, it certainly would be true that all human beings then would have to be born into this world either elect or non-elect. If you grant the presupposition that predestination is true. And even if you're an Arminian and you believe that election is on foreknowledge, God made that choice before the foundation of the world, therefore everybody's born in this world, either elect or non-elect, is either way. You can't get out of that. God doesn't have to wait to see when a person dies whether they're going to die in a state of grace or not. So he makes his choice before human experience. So since... All men are either born elect or non-elect. Of course the confession would say that there are elect infants and non-elect infants. But the confession does not say that there are non-elect infants who die in infancy. That the only people who actually perish in hell are those who grow up to be adults and who refuse to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Those are the people which the confession says actually perishes. Not any non-elect infant. Every non-elect infant that is born must be allowed to grow into maturity, wherein, as we have shown in previous messages, he shall manifest his sinfulness by refusing to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. As often as the gospel is preached, the reprobate refuses to come to Christ. That's why if you're here tonight and God does not choose to renew your soul through divine regeneration, I can preach until I am blue in the face and you will not come to Christ. You will not come. Jesus said of the group in his day, you will not come to me that you might have life. No man can come except the Spirit of God draw him. There must be an effectual working of God before you'll come to personal faith in Christ. Now, you may elicit a decision, but the Bible says that no man can call Jesus Lord, my owner, my sovereign, but by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. A lot of people calling Jesus their Savior today, but they won't acknowledge him as their Lord to do with them as he sees best. A lot of people want the benefits of the cross. They don't want to have to bow to the crown rights of Jesus Christ. And that's what salvation is. When is a person actually saved? When they're bowed to the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here am I, Lord. Do with me. As you see best, that's a person who's been brought into the conscious awareness of their position in Christ Jesus. So that they can say with Job, though he slay me, yet I will what? Trust him. If God should purpose right tonight to take your life, that be all right with you? Hmm? God purposed to take one of your children tonight. That be all right with you? I'm probing here because this will tell you whether or not you've got a heart that's bowed in salvation. It's the heart who says, no, you don't have right to my soul and you don't have right to my children. That's the heart that's never been brought to settled peace at the feet of of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when that heart persists and hardens, I don't care how often the gospel is presented, to come unto Christ, all you weary and heavy laden, ye will not come to that Christ. You won't come to that Christ unless God destroys that heart which is rooted and hardened in sin and gives you a heart of flesh. Say with little Samuel, Speak, Lord. Your servant hears. Say with Paul on the road to Damascus, Who art thou, Lord? I'm Jesus. Lord, what will you have me to do? That's the mark of a person who's been brought into consciousness of salvation. So none are actually condemned except those who refuse to come to Christ. All men are condemnable because of their connection with Adam, but none are actually damned in hell, according to the confession, except those who never truly come to Christ. And dead infants are excluded from this class of people. So our statement certainly does not teach anything of the nature that we believe that some infants who die in infancy perish. Now, we want to give very quickly a concise summation of our statement. The contrast which is being drawn here in our confession of faith is not as our critic makes, that being the contrast between an elect infant dying in infancy and a non-elect infant dying in infancy. The contrast which the confession is making is between elect persons who die in infancy and elect persons who do not die in infancy. That's what the contrast is. 
How does God save his elect? Those who are responsible adults, he saves them through the preaching of the gospel. Those who are incapable of discerning the preaching of the gospel, he saves directly by the Spirit who works when and where and how he pleases to do so. That's the contrast which the whole chapter is designed to bring into play. How does God save his elect adults? He does it through the preaching of the gospel. All right, then how then can God save a person who's incapable of hearing the gospel and discerning the gospel? What about the infant? What about the mentally retarded? And the confession says that God does it directly by the Spirit who regenerates and applies the merits of Christ's death to the life. Now, this is not the first time that this charge has ever been made against the Calvinistic statement of faith. In the year 1902, the General Assembly of the Southern Presbyterian Church met to give their statement upon this section which we have read to you tonight. And here is what they stated fully for the world to know. This assembly is fully persuaded that the language employed in chapter 10, section 3 of our Confession of Faith, touching infants dying in infancy, does not teach that there are any infants dying in infancy who are damned. But it is only meant to show that those who die in infancy are saved in a different manner from adult persons who are capable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. Furthermore, we are persuaded that the Holy Scriptures, when fairly interpreted, amply warrant us in believing that all infants who die in infancy are included in the election of grace and are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit, unquote. Now, that's given from the minutes of the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church, which met in the year 19... Uh, uh, 19